This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. I'm based in New Orleans, where all the festivals that would normally have taken place in the spring have moved to October. At the moment, there's a major festival for every weekend. But the festivals lined up like this in 2022, and one by one, they fell as COVID made them impossible. So as part of my gig as a music writer, I've been tracking the booking of live music with an eye for what it means for New Orleans festivals. Up until recently, most tours and festivals were looking to start at the fall, but this week, the Newport Folk Festival announced that it will take place in late July, and violinist Lindsey Sterling announced a national tour that will start July 3rd in Kansas City. I'm watching these again with the idea, what will this mean for New Orleans? Basically, my take is, any show that happens, any festival that happens, ups the odds that what's scheduled for October will actually happen in October. Recently, I talked to Lindsay Sterling about her COVID time touring, and of course, her Christmas music, including her 2018 album, Warmer in the Winter. Lindsay Sterling is my guest today on 12 Songs. Lindsay Sterling is the kind of pop success story I like because it's a reminder that there's more than one way to become a pop star. She tells much of the story, so I won't go deep into it here, but she first made her mark on America's Got Talent in 2010, where her mix of violin, electronic music, and dance got her to the quarterfinals. When that train ended, she began making videos on YouTube, where she built a brand and found an audience. When she next spoke to record companies, she had data and a track record of success in addition to music and ambition. Our conversation starts with a discussion of Lose You Now, a collaboration with singer Mako that she released recently in both electronic and acoustic forms. We'll start there in a minute, but I also want to start today with a song I'm thinking about for a writing project. I wish it was Christmas today. The song has become an unlikely rock Christmas standard, and it started life on Saturday Night Live in 2000 as one of the last sketches of the night. The kind of odd thing that would be weirdly interesting if it airs, but a sketch that's not so cool that something great would be lost if it was cut for time. In the sketch, Chris Kattan held a Casio keyboard for Jimmy Fallon, who started a beat on it before Horatio Sands picked a simple guitar riff out of what looked like a toy guitar, while Tracy Morgan stood in place and danced. They're united by red plaid jackets, red and white striped scarves, and a shared effort to keep a straight face while singing and dancing to the goofy little tune. Kattan has his head turning in metronomic time looking at the audience on the one and the three and at the back of the stage on the two and four. Sand sings the whole song with a garage band attitude as he should because the first line is garage rock in a nutshell. I don't care what your mama says. Sure, it's nonsensical because the whole line is I don't care what your mama says, Christmas time is near, as if that's a point for debate. But that only adds to the weird elemental fun of it. The sketch was popular enough that Saturday Night Live reprised it in 2001, 2002, 2004, and 2012. And Fallon got the gang back together and added Ariana Grande to do it on The Tonight Show in 2018. But Julius Casablancas of The Strokes recognized the garage rock in the song and recorded it in 2009. Replaced the sketch comics, the wardrobes, the Casio, and the plinked guitar with a rock and roll band and a singer with a world-class sneer, and you get a real rock and roll Christmas song.
2017, Cheap Trick picked up the song for its Christmas album, Christmas Christmas. Cheap Trick cherry-picked the admittedly slim library of rock and roll Christmas songs. Going back to 1973 for Slade's Merry Christmas Everybody and Roy Wood and Wizard's I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, as well as the Ramones' Merry Christmas, I Don't Want to Fight Tonight, Run Rudolph Run, The Kinks' Father Christmas, and Harry Nilsson's Remember, parenthetically, Christmas. The latter song, I think gets under the bar based on the title and Nilsson's pedigree more than anything specific in the song. If you didn't see Christmas in the title, you wouldn't necessarily think Christmas. Anyway, Cheap Trick also included I Wish It Was Christmas Today, and it's the sort of song the band specializes in, with clear, effortless hooks that the band could supercharge with its power and Robin Zander's voice. Since then, Countless indie bands have done it, and I could spend a few hours playing their versions on Bandcamp. We'll finish with one of those later. Let's go to Cheap Trick's version, then we'll be back on the other side with Lindsey Sterling. you have tour dates scheduled on your website. These days when I look at websites, I'm never sure if I'm looking at tour dates that are theoretical, tour dates that used to exist, or tour dates that are actual and now. You theoretically are starting a tour in July. Are you actually starting a tour in July? Yes. I'm so excited. I can finally say that. I've, you know, it's been tentative for so long, literally since we moved it last, it was supposed to be 2020. We moved it. And, you know, I've just been very hopeful, keeping my fingers crossed. But as like, as of a few days ago, it's official. We are going on this tour. Those dates are real. We're, I, I cannot wait. Oh, that's excellent. Good for you. Now you're, so you'll be touring in support of Artemis, right? Yeah. Um, it was such a bummer to feel like I only got to do half of a run of the Artemis album. And now it's, you know, it's going to be amazing to get to bring that album to the States. So you did get to play at least some of it, right? You did get to play some tours, some, some shows in support of it. Yeah, we did Europe. 
And then we literally landed in South America to start the South American tour the day that the lockdown happened. So we were on the flight there when we got a message saying, as soon as you land, get your bags, turn around, you're coming back. COVID is shutting down everything. And I was like, what? But um, so we will sometime have to make up, you know, like, you know, we're going to Russia and all over the place and South America, you know, in the following year. But this year we're doing the States and I can't, I'm not, like, I couldn't be more excited. Is an album real if you uh, if you haven't played it in front of audiences or you haven't really toured it? You know, I feel like there's like stages for music for me personally, um, because it's like when you're writing the song, it's like you're on this blind date and you're trying to see if you like each other. And if you have if it matches your sensibilities of music, then when you decide, okay, this is it, and you record it and you cut it and it gets released, to me, that's still the beginning stages of the relationship with the song. You know, then you see how fans react to it, you see what it means to them, it gets more. And then for me, also a big part of it is when I make a music video, I fall in love with the song. Then when I step on stage with it, it's like, you know it's like the real deal. Then you've got the full circle relationship. So for me, those stages are part of what make a song real to me. Um, so I feel like my relationship with my music has been a bit stunted. <laughs> <laughs> well, and between recording and the stage, do songs change? Um, Sometimes, sometimes a little bit, you know, like there's always, you know, I think the fun thing about live music is that when you record a song, it's almost like the song, it, it, now it's unchanging, you know, it can't, it can't be improved upon, it can't be, uh, you can't, you know, the creativity kind of ends musically when it's recorded. However, with live tours, it's fun to like um, do mashups you know, with your own music, it's fun to think of, whoa, this cool run, you know, like improvise a little bit. And so just minor tweaks will change in live shows. But I think one of my favorite things to do is like mashups, because then it kind of cuts the song wide open again, and you get to like, move it around and play and layer. And, um, you know, so that's the beauty of live shows is it makes them real again and livable. Do you find your relationships to some of the songs changes with time on a tour? Yes, I think, um, you know, especially songs that were written about um, really hard things, um, you know, like written about, I wrote a lot of music about grief and I've written music about overcoming anorexia. You know, I've written music about some really hard things and at once upon a time, those things maybe were harder to talk about or harder to feel. And then you kind of, as you grow, it's not like things get easier, but you understand them. You know how to deal with those emotions and you become mature with that emotion. And so I feel like, you know, gosh, I remember when I did my Brave Enough tour, I'd literally cry on stage as I was playing certain songs. And now I can play those songs and they invoke more sweet memories, like a sadness but it's a bit there's gratitude with it for those people rather than just pain that they're gone. You know, I'm, I'm more filled with, yeah, the gratitude that I had them and that I have these memories still with me. So yeah, in that way, I feel like songs do change, you know, and the songs written about anorexia that once were like felt this feeling of, Oh, I remember being trapped. They now remind me that I'm free rather than the feeling of trapped. So I think they do definitely change. Does, does that relationship change show up in the performance? I think so. I mean, you know, I think 
Uh, yeah, I would, I would imagine so, because I think emotions go so much stronger than we ever imagined. Like, I think that, you know, you can literally feel someone's energy and their presence, you know, if someone's agitated, you feel it. If someone's excited, you, you feel that, um, that's a very tangible actual wave that we produce of energy. It's not just like, you know, hippie heebie jeebie stuff. It's real. Um, and so I can't help, but think that when you're on stage, you're feeling all of that emotion and you're projecting not only music, I think we're projecting our feelings and people can feel that. Yeah, I think absolutely. Right now you have out two versions of love you, of uh, lose you now, mm -hmm. uh, a, an electric version and an acoustic version. Yeah. Um, why two versions of the song? What do they give you? You know, I, well, I love, um, you know, classical music is my roots. It's where I came from. And so occasionally I really like to do like double arrangements of some, some of my songs, you know, and uh, kind of reinvent them kind of like we were talking about. So the song doesn't just stop. It's like, you get to give it a new life. And um, so having this acoustic version, um, you know, I felt like bring it a different feeling, you know, like when you, like you were talking about different nuances, tiny changes in a mix or in someone's performance or, you know, anything will make a song feel different. And so the acoustic version brought out a sweetness in the song, like a tenderness that I feel like um, the produced version, you know, the electric version or whatever we want to call it, it has a little bit more of an empowering, strong, like, sense but um but yeah there's so much sweetness in the acoustic version that I feel like brings out a different feeling that can come from you know remembering those you love I wish I could remember every second we had I know I dread to count them all one by one, one by one But you don't get them back, you don't get them back Take every memory we've ever had Oh, I want to live them all one by one, one by one And I swear that I'm not gonna lose you now I'll keep you in my life somehow And even when the lights go down that make you want to do more you know, for lack of a better term more sort of unplugged music or unplugged versions of other songs to see what they give you yeah you know I've thought about possibly going back because I've done it like here and there for different songs and for, for example I did it years ago with my song crystallize which was the song that changed my life it was the first time that I felt like wow my life has changed. This is going to work. And it was this dubstep song I'd written, but I also decided like a year afterwards to do an orchestral version of it. And I personally like the orchestral version better. That's the one I now perform on stage is the orchestra version of, you know, my biggest song, you know? And so I do think it's interesting how you can re-fall in love with a song. You can reinvent it. Um, and so, yeah, I have thought about maybe I should do that with other songs, make a a classical version album or an orchestral album of my favorite songs. Does, do the different versions tell you different things or highlight different things in your mind about the songs? 
Yeah. They bring out a totally different feeling. Like for example, the one I was just talking about crystallize, I think, uh, suddenly it goes from being this like kind of heavy dubstep, like cool, like I'm trying to be Skrillex vibe to like, it feels like a powerful epic scene from a movie to me when I hear it. Cause it sounds cinematic. It sounds more cinematic. So um, yeah, definitely. It's, it's interesting how we focus so much on melody, but really it's like, you know, one of the biggest drivers of like the emotion you feel in music is through like, not the melody, it's the performance and it's the, it's the um, what's behind it. It's the support system that's giving that melody everything. Right. Now, so in your mind, what's the difference sort of content wise between the two versions of Lose You Now? What is what like what does an acoustic version of Lose You Now give you versus what the electric version gives you? Um. I think that it, uh, well, there's something kind of raw about an acoustic version. And I felt like this was such a raw song. Like it really was very personal, like giving some of my beliefs, some of my, like my little heart, like literally put on the table. And uh, so when you do an acoustic version of anything, it's a little more raw. And so I felt, I always knew we would do an acoustic version of this song to kind of, you know, crack it open even a little bit more and make it feel even more intimate. Right. Now, did this all come, this all came about during the, you know, during the shutdown of the last year? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I had written a song, so there's not only two versions of this song, there's actually three. There's an instrumental Uh, uh, version. That's how it all started, actually, was I wrote a song on my Artemis album. It was instrumental. It was called Guardian. And I always, I wrote it about my belief in guardian angels and that, uh, and that version actually feels more empowering. It feels like hopeful and grand. And, um, but it's like a lot of the same melody, it's the same melody that I play. It's um, the same chords, a lot of the same, you know, similar production. Um, but I never put words to it. One, cause I liked the instrumental, but also I couldn't put into words what I was trying to say. Sometimes I, you know, words aren't my first language, music is, melodies are, the violin is. So I left it as an instrumental. And Mako is a good friend of mine. I had, he worked with me on my Artemis album and I had told him what the album meant to me and what that song was about, about guardian angels and my belief that our loved ones never really leave us, that we can choose to look for signs of them in our life. And, you know, and so he actually wrote the lyrics. I wasn't even aware that he was writing them. And then he, but sent me the song basically with these new lyrics in it and this mashup. And I just was so like emotional when I heard it immediately. And so that's what kind of prompted, you know, lose you now. And then, yeah, we worked on um, making it a song and even the video and all of it through um, the lockdown. And I swear that I'm not good. you write other material during the lockdown? Not a lot. I, uh, I 
have to usually wait till I feel kind of inspired. And I was really uninspired. I know a lot of artists use this time to write music and, you know, like lots of it and they're ready to go. Um, I just recently started writing again because I was like, I just wasn't, I wasn't feeling anything to write about. Um, so I spent the lockdown, I learned a lot about production, which was really cool. I, um, you know, and also engineering, I've gotten really good at recording myself. Um, I learned how to hang by my hair for an aerial acrobatic routine, like <laughs> weird. Yes. But cr the craziest thing I've ever done by far, you know, um, so I've used the lockdown to do quite a few very random things. Um, spend a lot of time with family. That was great. And, uh, and it, it's a year that I don't feel was wasted. <laughs> That's the important part. Yeah. Yeah. Now you did also, you released a version of what child is this with Darius Rucker for last yes. Christmas. So mm -hmm. how did you connect with Darius? So I'm a, a big fan of the CMAs. Um, Robert Deaton, who produces the CMAs and the CMA Christmas program. And like, he's so in, entrenched in that country world. Um, he and I are good friends. We've become good friends through the years of working together. And he brought me in uh, multiple times to do the CMA Christmas. And um, anyway, so he was the one that suggested this collaboration with Darius and I'd actually never met Darius before, uh, definitely knew who he was. And, um, you know, we did it originally just, it was going to be a like one-off performance for the CMA Christmas, but we really enjoyed the process. We loved working together and we're like, let's, let's release this. Like it's, it turned out so good that I thought I have to, you know, we got to release this. Yeah. Did you fired tracks back and forth or did you actually get to a studio together at some point we never got to a well we performed it together on the cma christmas but we had to have it arranged prior um so we did just kind of send stuff back and forth and we actually took the arrangement from my christmas album which was really fun for me because i worked so hard on this violin arrangement with you know this or it was uh, recorded with a live orchestra and so we took that arrangement and then just like tweaked it so it would be a duet Now, last year, you did a um, you did a, a live stream Christmas show, right? Yes, and I loved that experience. It was so fun. <laughs> did that make you want to do a uh, do future live stream or future Christmas shows, whether hopefully not live streamed in the future or <laughs> or video yes, or other ways? I've done uh, quite a few Christmas tours, and that's kind of why I had that thought of like. I need this. I was like, I, I was kind of getting to that point of COVID where I think we all hit lows at some point, you know, maybe multiple times, maybe, you know, but that was kind of my COVID low was prior to filming that Christmas special. And I was like, I need to do something to feel like I am 
contributing to the world, to feel like I'm bringing joy, to feel creative. Like, you know, I was like, I feel like this is something that would bring joy to my fans, my crew, my dancers, and me. Like my mental health needed something to invest in. And so I decided to like go for it. And I had no idea if tickets would sell because there was kind of no data to see if a virtual concert would sell tickets, but I decided to go for it anyway and take that risk. And it was so fun. I mean, getting after so many months of not being able to do like creative things the way I like to do them, to be able to be on a stage and be working so hard and making costumes and practicing my little heart out and, you know, with my crew and seeing their joy in like creating sets. And it just was almost like Christmas summer camp as we all worked on this together. And it was very magical to feel that camaraderie of my crew and my dancers and everybody's, we worked as a team after having to be isolated for so long. And I'm very proud of it. Like the, you know, what we pulled off in the amount of time and with the budget we had, like, I don't know, I, it's something I'll always be super proud of, you know, the art we created. Do you think about trying to figure out how to do it again in the future? Possibly, you know, it was, I, I love touring live, but the fun thing about the way I did the Christmas special was like some of my favorite things to do are music videos and tour. And I wasn't going to try, I, I decided I wanted to combine the two, like make music video style live performances, you know, rather than trying to trick everyone. And I didn't want, I didn't care if they knew it was pre-recorded or if it wasn't live violin playing, I wasn't trying to trick anybody. But since I couldn't live perform and they couldn't have that experience of seeing and feeling it live, I thought, well, there's no way to replace that. So what could I do that you couldn't do in a live performance that has to travel every night? You know, what could I do? What are all these ideas I've had for tours that I've never been able to experience and put together because they just weren't practical. So I got to pull out all these really fun ideas and mix the worlds of like, cause they were all seamlessly filmed performances front to back. So they weren't music videos, but they were, they weren't a live show. And that's why I did the hair hanging, something I, my head could not take doing every night, time after time after time. You know, it was something I could do in a one-off situation, you know? So I really went for it and thought, what are fantastical things that I could do so that people can have something exciting, um, you know, so that I can have something exciting um, this Christmas. Is that a body of material that over the years you've, you kind of learn that uh, the, this, like I'm in New Orleans, and so like there is a body of music that most that used to be all musicians knew. Now a lot of musicians know, and it's just if music music you can you know you can walk on a bandstand and someone can say let's play Hey Pocky Way, and everybody knows how to step into that song. Um, and yeah. I wonder if Christmas music is one of those bodies of music that after a certain amount of time, if you if you are at all serious as a musician, you more or less know ha know a decent number of Christmas songs. I think so, especially for people that are good at playing by ear, like a lot of the New Orleans musicians. Um, yeah, you know, that's why I think I had so much fun working on my Christmas album, because it was like all these songs that were just like have spun through my head so many times. And I, you know. I, I can, they're all memorized back in there, even without trying and then trying to be like, okay, well, how can we turn them on their head? How can we um, reinvent them? That's the challenge I think with, for me in making a Christmas album is, gosh, these songs have all been recorded so many times, you know, by instrumentalists, by singers, by orchestras, like 
how do I make mine special? Why, how, why would anyone want to buy my version of Carol of the Bells, you know? And so that was one of the fun things, but also the challenging things about when you do have a body of work that everybody can play and everybody can say, does know is okay well then why why me why mine right got to make a reason for your version out there. Okay, well, how do we get people excited to come to mine? And I, I love that challenge. I love the idea of like, I think one of my, my better talents is being able to um, rethink things like, for example, the simple task of rethinking the violin, how can I make the violin fresh for myself? Originally, it was just fresh for myself, I was burnt out of classical music. And I thought, how can I just reinvigorate the violin for me? And by doing that, it kind of reinvigorated the violin for a lot of, you know, people that like my music, um, you know, and so I think that goes back to the roots of why I am the way I am, why I'm the musician I am. So I think just reinventing things and combining things that maybe aren't necessarily conventional and, you know, um, that I think that's one of my talents, one of my bigger talents. And uh, so that's why it was such a fun challenge to be like, okay, well, what can I combine in these situations to make this cool to make people come to my show you know to make people want my art in any way yeah. when you started working on uh, warmer in the winter did you have any kind of sort of framework or a concept in mind like i want that i want songs to do this or i want an album to do that did you have a, a sort of a big picture idea um yes i felt like what is it? I felt like they're, I'm trying to remember what they were. I felt like Christmas music kind of falls into three categories. There's like the spiritual, then there's the really jolly happy. And then there's the like warm fuzzy, you know, there's like those three things. And I wanted to make sure my album had those three things in it. So I very specifically picked songs that I felt like filled those buckets. And then musically, I was like, there's like kind of this jazzy crooner feel that comes along with a lot of the classics. So I was like, okay, got to have some of that. Then there's like the orchestral, like got to have some of that. And that was really fun for me because I felt like my Christmas album allowed me to step out of this kind of box that normally I'm, I sit in with a lot of my music, which is kind of very like EDM and production inspired, but to get to like on my Christmas album, I recorded, you know, like I said, there was a live orchestra that recorded the backing track. There was, um, we had, uh, you know, like band players come in to Capitol Records and record live, you know, several of the songs. And then, of course, I had to do a few that fell into like the Lindsey Sterling vein of like the electronic music. So I kind of, again, had three buckets for style. And, you know, and as long as it fell in those categories, I felt like I could have a bit of a wider bubble and a wider 
appeal than my normal albums have. It's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go orchestral. Then let's go big band. Then let's have, because the theme was Christmas and the violin. And so anything kind of that felt, you know, anything that supported that worked. Well, and I think there's also, there's also some, some tradition of that because the album, you know, the Christmas album has always kind of acted like, like a timeout. Uh, a musical yeah. timeout. It's a moment where, you know, Johnny Mathis put down his Johnny Mathisness and said, "Hey, you and me, let's talk Christmas yeah. music, and let me sing some songs that I know you love." And that that idea that for you know for two for a month and a half or so you would sort of put aside, you know, your mate your sort of macro project to say let's do something that connects, sort of yes. would always give you a little bit of latitude. And there's there's a real history of that, obviously. Um, yeah, it's a good way to put it. Now, when uh, so, which of those boxes did you see the title track in? Warmer. Um, oh, the title track. Uh, that was kind of in that like jazzy crooner style. I, I specifically sat down to write that song, and I was like, I want to make this feel like old school Christmas. And you know, the funny thing about the title track, it's called "Warmer in the Winter," and I was in the studio with uh, two guys writing it. And I felt like this needed to be sung by a woman. We wrote it for a female voice. And so I sang the demo, no plans on singing it on the album. But then when we had a couple, you know, singers cut it, I just was kind of like, you know what? I, I never pretend like I have the greatest voice. I, I you know, I, I know I'm not a trained singer, but I, you know, went to my managers and I was like, you know what? I liked the way I sounded on it. I liked that simple, you know, childlike voice that I had I just felt like it fit so I ended up singing the song on the album I was on tour actually in South America when the album was being you know mixed and mastered and that was the point that we realized I wanted to record it so I think it was in Chile I went to some guy's little home studio in Chile and recorded warmer in the winter um, while on a South American summer tour so uh, kind of a funny story there, but, and then I ended up singing a couple songs on the album. I sang Santa baby. Um, and then I wonder as I wander, I sang on that. And this is the only album I've ever like full out sung on. I've, I've added vocals to tracks, you know, textural stuff more like, but this was the first time I ever like featured my voice. Um, and I feel like that would have only worked on that Christmas album feel where it is kind of like, you know, you set everything aside, but you described it so well, you know, like, let's sit on the couch. Let's be real. Let's drink hot cocoa. And that casual feeling is probably the only place that I'll ever sing. (laughs) (laughs) PJs with fuzzy socks, ugly sweaters with polka dots, warm cookies had my fill. I might have gained a pound or two to help with the chill. Hot cocoa, piping hot, snuggled up in our favorite spot. Whisper things we shouldn't say, and I don't plan on leaving you till Christmas Day. Windows frosted, summer sleeping, but I don't really mind. I know that it's cold With you. So why did you bring Trombone Shorty in for that? 
oh, because I, I think he's so cool. I respect, you know, I'm as an instrumentalist, it was really exciting for me to think about like what instrumentalists could I feature on this album? And, um, and actually we had a, like a, a trombone in there. It was a terribly recorded, like, but it was a synth trombone. And so, you know, I was like, well, I'd love, we have, we were always going to get it replaced by a trombone player. And then I was like, well, let's get Trump, you know, let's get trombone journey. <laughs> like how fun would that be? Tell me about working with Troy. You know, I actually didn't meet him. We only spoke on the phone. I always hate it when that happens. Cause I love that moment when you meet artists in the studio or, you know, you get that moment to like, um, you know, collaborate in more than just a musical sending tracks way. And sadly, a lot of times that's how it happens nowadays. But um, so I didn't actually get to meet him, but I spoke with him on the phone. Super nice guy. And um, so chill. He was just like, cool. Like, yeah, yeah I'll do it. Yeah. Like, I was so chill. Like, I, I don't know. There's like a feeling a lot of artists sometimes feel like they or we have to like protect our brand so much like you can feel that with people him he was just so like chill and just like yeah whatever you want like cool let's do it yeah so that was a i could tell he was a really nice guy yeah yeah so before we go too far down the, uh, the hole tell me about your relationship to christmas music growing up oh man christmas music is uh it like brings back very specific memories. And that's uh, one of the reasons I was so excited about making a Christmas album was because certain songs I'll hear and they're almost like a memory time capsule. You know, you hear those opening notes and you immediately are taken back to a moment. And so Christmas music played like on rotation in our home when I was a kid and it played on my dad's old record player. Like that was the only Christmas music we had were records and so I, like it to me, Christmas music attaches sometimes to like that scratchy sound that starts before the music, you know, that, <laughs> like that makes me feel like, like I, I actually should have started my album with that scratchy sound that, now that I'm thinking about that would have been smart, but you know, um, so I can just remember, um, it makes me think of my dad a lot because he had, especially this like one album with a Christmas tree on it. And for some reason that was our favorite. And I remember every year around Christmas time, he'd pull out the Christmas albums, the <laughs> records. And that Christmas tree one was always the first one that went on. And um, so, yeah, it always makes me think of my dad. Oh, that's great. Do you have any songs that stick out in your mind as either ones that, that you either particularly love or ones that in some way just were kind of uh, you know, eye openers for you? Well, my favorite Christmas song is Carol of the Bells, always has been, you know, and I, that's why I was like, I have to make my version of Carol of the Bells awesome. Like, it was really important to me that I was like, this one can't be just a song in the album. It has to be great. And I was really happy with how it came out. Um, and then one that actually I wasn't able to like figure out how to put my own stamp on enough. Um, so it didn't end up on my album, but one of the most memorable ones from my childhood is actually Sleigh Ride. Um, cause you hear the horse with the trumpet, you know, you hear the horse's feet clacking along the paint or the, you know, the cobblestones with the percussion. Like the, I felt like that song really brought a visual to my mind as a child. And, you know, those are the moments that I think made me think of instrumental music as storytelling things is the way my dad would tell me, you hear the horse, you know? Like, or he, like he would talk to us. Like I remember the music from not Christmas, but Scheherazade, he told us, this is the story about a princess. And so he kind of taught me as a young child to hear story through melody. 
Um, and I, I really attribute a lot of that to why I really, you know, the approach I take to my writing is what story am I telling? What am I trying to make people visualize? Is it a princess? Like, you know, or are we on an emotional journey? I, let's tell a story. song on uh when you started recording warmer in the winter was there a song that served as kind of proof of concept that you know once you had it done you knew this was going to work let's see i'm trying to think what the first song that i got really excited about was what was it i think the first one i got really excited about that i was like ah yeah got it was um dance of the sugar plum fairy um because i felt like it was very Lindsay Sterling. It just felt very much like me, my, my like kind of a little bit of electric style mixed with cinematic orchestra. Like it was a perfect blend of the two. Cause like a live record live orchestra played on it. And yet there's like a lot of like, you know, like some drum and bass type trap type percussion in an orchestral arrangement. And so, I don't know. I just remember being like, this is it, you know, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> I was going to say, was there, you know, when you start a project like that, is there a moment where, like, I don't know quite how this plane lands? Oh, uh, absolutely. I feel like anytime you start a new musical project, like, especially if you're working on, like, an album of any kind, I feel like there's a lot of just blind flying for a while, for me anyway, where I just write, like, and I, usually I go pretty far to the corners of my, you know, my thoughts, like, for example, right now, I'm trying to kind of discover a new style, as I said, you know, or just like a new expression. Um, and so I've been writing way out there. I wrote a disco song the other day, then I wrote a rock song, you know, before the day before that. And then, like, I, I've been working with this hip hop um, producer. So I mean, I just go wide. And so it's, you know, usually I'm going way too wide. But that's what kind of helps me come back to a different middle than I was before. Right. Um, is So, yeah, for example, with the Christmas album, I remember at first it, it all just sounded pretty generic, you know, and then it sounded too ungeneric, you know, too far. Ah, 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 and then ah. you finally find yourself somewhere in a new middle. What track was the hardest to nail down? 
The hardest to nail down was probably, um, it was probably uh, Carol of the Bells because that's the one I cared about the <laughs> most. You know, I really wanted that one to be um, epic. You know, I love the Trans-Siberian Orchestra version so much. And I love the sweet instrumental versions that are like more orchestral. And so it's just like, oh, how can I do this without copying Trans-Siberian Orchestra, but making it just as epic as theirs? And, um, you know, so it, it took a couple tries to get that one right. But, you know, like I said, it's it's one of my, my favorites on the album. Right. So one of the things I wanted to ask about is as much as Christmas music exists as a part of, obviously, part of the marketplace and a part of our art life, it's also, you know, it's a spiritual place as well. And I wonder how Christmas music fits in with your spiritual practices and your spiritual world. Yeah, I am like a very, like, I'm not only religious, I'm very spiritual, but also like I grew up going to church and I still go to church every week. You know, it's it, religion and spirituality is a very important part of, I feel like the foundation of my life. And it's um, something that's brought me peace and happiness. And so, you know, one thing that I, you know, and I've been pretty open with my fans throughout the years that I believe in God and that I, you know, attribute a lot to that belief. Um, so but it's cool because on Christmas tour you kind of have the liberty to like talk about it a little bit more because Christmas that's the culture of like Christmas not the holidays but Christmas the culture is around that religious belief um but also it's um it was really cool to take songs and make them in a different spiritual way. For example, there's this old Celtic song called I Wonder As I Wander and that actually ended up being my favorite song on the album and it was a it was um added to the deluxe album I wrote it a year after you know the Christmas <laughs> album so we ha it was so good that I was like I have to put this on the album um but it you know I start out by singing it in a very old kind of Celtic way very sweet melody and I've only ever heard the song done like that just super sweet innocent somber with like a little piano behind it but I wanted to make it give it a little bit of a dark sense because I feel like sometimes spirituality is seen in such a one-dimensional way. It has to be like, um, you know, at least the culture I was raised in, oftentimes it has to be like reverent. And so I wanted to make something that captured the power that I feel from spirituality, but also the grit that it takes to like really lean into that. And, you know, the hardship of life sometimes pulls you away from it. And so this is a very heavy version of I Wonder As I Wander that's got huge epic beats in it and but it's when you boil it down it's a song about feeling lost and wandering you know and trying to find your way back to christ right um and you know very simple spiritual thought but um and especially in the christmas show we did it in a very dark way but it was very to me that's when spirituality like when it's not so on the nose as we're supposed to feel it but more this is how i feel it
know, as you say, is a tendency when you think about faith and music to want to always kind of go to a, for lack of a better term, a kind of a glum seriousness. Yeah. And to realize that faith can be joyful, but not, you know, losing your mind joyful, but faith, yeah. faith can be fun and that that there is still a whole range of emotions available to you still within a, a, a faith-based realm. Right. And, you know, and I, I think that's cool to see in, you know, different faiths. Like I love, you know, seeing Baptist worships when they like are singing and they're clapping and, you know, that's something that wasn't a part of the way that spirituality was practiced in the faith, you know, and I'm, um, I'm Mormon. And so it's a lot more focused on like reverence. And I, I still love that aspect, but I love also to think of, well, everybody feels things in different ways. Like no one shoe fits everybody. And so like, how can I express my spirituality through, like you said, different emotions and in a new way than what we're normally told will bring out that spiritual feeling. Cause like, if you want to feel spiritual, this is what you do, but ah, no. There's, there's all kinds of different textures and layers um, to, you know, and when you get in that rut of thinking this is how it's supposed to be, that's usually when you miss what it actually is. And it would seem almost like an artist. One of your jobs is almost when they say, here's what you're supposed to do or supposed to feel. It seems like part of your job at that moment is to say, let's see if there's another way to go that makes sense. And musically, and musically has a life. And I think that's the exact approach that you have to take when you're like, how do I do this in a way? <laughs> you know, like we we're talking about before that challenge of like, oh, this has been done a million times, you know, well, if that's how it's supposed to be, let's try it in the opposite direction for a little yeah. bit, you know? Yeah, I want to wrap up. You just said something that just made me think about something I wanted to touch on which is that you've done it a couple of times now where you've done like different versions of a song like you've done two versions of what child is this and i mean you just did you know recorded you know two versions of lose you now and i wonder is it hard sometimes to focus on the ver on the version to record do you find that something that it's easy for you to see a valid choice a and choice b and choice c um, gosh, I feel like that's one of the challenges of like making music is that there's endless options and you can work on a song forever. And literally the only reason anyone releases any music is because usually we have deadlines, you know, <laughs> that's the only reason it gets done because it's never going to be perfect. And there's always other options of like, well, I could, we could do this. Let's try it like this. And so at the end of the day, you finally just have to say, I like this. And then that's another hopeful thing for me is that I know that if I want to experience, you know, experiment with something else later, I can make another version. You know, that's part of what sometimes helps me to close the book and say, all right, time to turn that in time to release it. Um, so I think yeah. that's one of the, the things that helps me turn in the music is knowing this doesn't have to be the end of this song. If I want, we'll reinvent it later. Is that a, is that a YouTube experience? The idea that being in that space that, you know, there's always room for another video. There's always room for another expression that is, doesn't require going through the same machinery that, uh, you know, making another record or another song does. I don't know. 
I feel like YouTube taught me the valuable, valuable lesson of not feeling like you have to be perfect, you know, because when, you know, when you start, like that was the thing I learned over and over again, like in order to create quantity, um, you know, in order to connect with fans on a real level, even if it wasn't like a music video, because I still, I have certain things that I want to make as perfect as I can. But then you realize there's a place for things where they don't have to be perfect. There's a place where you can, I can, it's okay to expose that maybe I do play out of tune sometimes, you know, and that's okay. And that's done through like live streaming, you know, moments. And um, at first that felt so vulnerable to like expose that I'm not the best player in the world. Gosh, darn it. Dang it. Now, now they know, now they won't like me anymore. Cause I'm, they'll see I'm a fraud, but you quickly learn that, you know, it's okay. No one's perfect. And in a way your imperfections make people say, oh my gosh, like she's like me. Like I, I, I can do this too. You know, people feel inspired because they realize that there's that wall of perfection. That's complete illusion. Um, and does it make me any less value to them? I've learned, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it actually, you know, but that's the fear. I think we all have is that we have to be perfect and we can only show when you know we can only show everything that's polished and um i think that's the biggest thing i've learned from social media is that i get the best reaction when i know when it's time to try to be perfect and make things polished and crispy and beautiful and i and learning when it's time to be real To Lindsay Sterling for the time and the talk. Tickets to her upcoming tour are on sale now. You can go to Ticketmaster or lindsaysterling.com to see where she'll be when. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music and thanks to you for listening. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe, follow, or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed. If you want to reach out with comments, suggestions, stories, tips, or whatever, you can find me on Facebook at 12 Songs of Christmas or by email at alex at myspiltmilk.com. Earlier, I was playing versions of I Wish It Was Christmas Today, and let's finish there. This is the Italian duo Michele e Julio, and their version from the 2014 album Soppressa di Natale, which you can find on Bandcamp and in the show notes. This is their version of I Wish It Was Christmas Today. Talk to you next week.
Wish you love.